George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, Chapter 12. It must have been three days after the Barcelona fighting ended that we returned to the front. After the fighting, more particularly after the slanging match in the newspapers, it was difficult to think about this war in quite the same naively idealistic manner as before. I suppose there is no one who spent more than a few weeks in Spain without being in some degree disillusioned. My mind went back to the newspaper correspondent whom I had met the first day in Barcelona and who said to me, This war is a racket, the same as any other. The remark had shocked me deeply, and at that time, December, I do not believe it was true. It was not true even now, in May, but it was becoming truer. The fact is that every war suffers a kind of progressive degradation with every month that it continues, because such things as individual liberty and a truthful press are simply not compatible with military efficiency. One could begin now to make some kind of guess at what was likely to happen. It was more easy to see that the Caballero government would fall and be replaced by a more right-wing government with a stronger communist influence. This happened a week or two later, which would set itself to break the power of the trade unions once and for all. And afterwards, when Franco was beaten, and putting aside the huge problems raised by the reorganization of Spain, the prospect was not rosy. As for the newspaper talk about this being a war for democracy, it was plain eyewash. No one in his senses supposed that there was any hope of democracy, even as we understand it in England or France, in a country so divided and exhausted as Spain would be when the war was over. It would have to be a dictatorship. And it was clear that the chance of a working-class dictatorship had passed. That meant that the general movement would be in the direction of some kind of fascism. Fascism called, no doubt, by some politer name, and, because this was Spain, more human and less efficient than the German or Italian varieties. The only alternatives were an infinitely worse dictatorship by Franco, or, always a possibility, that the war would end with Spain divided up, either by actual frontiers or into economic zones. Whichever way you took it, it was a depressing outlook. But it did not follow that the government was not worth fighting for, as against the more naked and developed fascism of Franco and Hitler. Whatever faults the post-war government might have, Franco's regime would certainly be worse. To the workers, the town proletariat, it might in the end make very little difference who won, but Spain is primarily an agricultural country, and the peasants would almost certainly benefit by a government victory. Some at least of the seized lands would remain in their possession, in which case there would be also a distribution of land in the territory that had been Franco's, and the virtual serfdom that had existed in some parts of Spain was not likely to be restored. The government in control at the end of the war would at any rate be anti-clerical and anti-feudal. It would keep the church in check, at least for the time being, and would modernize the country, build roads, for instance, and promote education and public health. A certain amount had been done in this direction even during the war. Franco, on the other hand, insofar as he was not merely the puppet of Italy and Germany, was tied to the big feudal landlords and stood for a stuffy, clerico-military reaction. The popular front might be a swindle, but Franco was an anachronism. Only millionaires or romantics could want him to win. Moreover, there was the question of the international prestige of fascism, which for a year or two past had been haunting me like a nightmare. Since 1930, the fascists had won all the victories. It was time they got a beating. It hardly mattered from whom. If we could drive Franco and his foreign mercenaries into the sea, it might make an immense improvement in the world situation, even if Spain itself emerged with a stifling dictatorship and all its best men in jail. For that alone, the war would have been worth winning. This was how I saw things at the time. I may say that I now think much more highly of the Green government than I did when I came into office, 
It has kept up the difficult fight with splendid courage, and it has shown more political tolerance than anyone expected. But I still believe that, unless Spain splits up, with unpredictable consequence, the tendency of the post-war government is bound to be fascistic. Once again, I let this opinion stand and take the chance that time will do to me what it does to most prophets. We had just reached the front when we heard that Bob Smilly, on his way back to England, had been arrested at the frontier, taken down to Valencia, and thrown into jail. Smilly had been in Spain since the previous October. He had worked for several months at the POUM office, and had then joined the militia when the other ILP members arrived, on the understanding that he was to do three months at the front before going back to England to take part in a propaganda tour. It was some time before we could discover what he had been arrested for. He was being kept incommunicado so that not even a lawyer could see him. In Spain there is, in, at any rate in practice, no habeas corpus, and you can be kept in jail for months at a stretch without even being charged, let alone tried. Finally, we learned from a released prisoner that Smilly had been arrested for carrying arms. The arms, as I happen to know, were two hand grenades of the primitive type used at the beginning of the war, which he had been taking home to show off at his lectures, along with shell splinters and other souvenirs. The charges and fuses had been removed from them. They were mere cylinders of steel and completely harmless. It was obvious that this was only a pretext, and that he had been arrested because of his known connection with the POUM. The Barcelona fighting had only just ended, and the authorities were at that moment extremely anxious not to let anyone out of Spain who was in a position to contradict the official version. As a result, people were liable to be arrested at the frontier on more or less frivolous pretexts. Very possibly the intention at the beginning was only to detain Smilly for a few days, but the trouble is that in Spain, once you were in jail, you generally stay there with or without trial. We were still at Huesca, but they had placed us further to the right, opposite the fascist redoubt that we had temporarily captured a few weeks earlier. I was now acting as teniente, corresponding to second lieutenant in the British Army, I suppose, in command of about thirty men, English and Spanish. They had sent my name in for a regular commission. Whether I should get it was uncertain. Previously, the militia officers had refused to accept regular commissions, which meant extra pay and conflicted with the egalitarian ideas of the militia, but they were now obliged to do so. Benjamin had already been gazetted captain, and Kopp was in process of being gazetted major. The government could not, of course, dispense with the militia officers, but it was not confirming any of them in a higher rank than major, presumably in order to keep the higher commands of regular army officers, and the new officers from the school of war. As a result, in our division, and no doubt in many others, you had the queer temporary situation of the divisional commander, the brigade commanders, and the battalion commanders all being majors. There was not much happening at the front. The battle round the Hakka Road had died away, and did not begin again until mid-June. In our position, the chief trouble was the snipers. The fascist trenches were more than 150 yards away, but they were on higher ground and were on two sides of us, our line forming a right-angle salient. The corner of the salient was a dangerous spot. There had always been a toll of sniper casualties there. From time to time, the fascists let fly at us a rifle grenade or some similar weapon. It made a ghastly crash, unnerving because you could not hear it coming in time to dodge, but was not really dangerous. The hole it blew in the ground was no bigger than a wash tub. The nights were pleasantly warm, the days blazing hot, the mosquitoes were becoming a nuisance. And in spite of the clean clothes we had brought from Barcelona, we were almost immediately lousy. Out in the deserted orchards in no man's land, the cherries were whitening on the trees. For two days there were torrential rains, the dugouts flooded, and the parapets sank a foot. 
After that, there were more days of digging at the sticky clay with the wretched Spanish spades, which have no handles and bend like tin spoons. They had promised us a trench mortar for the company. I was looking forward to it. At nights, we patrolled as usual, more dangerous than it used to be because the fascist trenches were better manned and they had grown more alert. They had scattered tin cans just outside their wire and used to open up with the machine guns when they heard a clank. In the daytime, we sniped from no man's land. By crawling a hundred yards, you could get to a ditch hidden by the tall grass, which commanded a gap in the fascist parapet. We had set up a rifle rest in the ditch. If you waited long enough, you generally saw a khaki-clad figure slip hurriedly across the gap. I had several shots. I don't know whether I hit anyone. It is most unlikely. I'm a very poor shot with a rifle. But it was rather fun. The fascists did not know where the shots were coming from, and I made sure I would get one of them sooner or later. However, the dog it was that died. The fascist sniper got me instead. I had been about ten days at the front when it happened. The whole experience of being hit by a bullet is very interesting, and I think it is worth describing in detail. I was at the corner of the parapet at five o'clock in the morning. This was always a dangerous time because we had the dawn at our backs, and if you stuck your head above the parapet, it was clearly outlined against the sky. I was talking to the sentries, preparatory to changing guard. Suddenly, in the very middle of saying something, I felt... It is very hard to describe what I felt, though I remember it with the utmost vividness. Roughly speaking, it was the sensation of being at the center of an explosion. There seemed to be a loud bang and a blinding flash of light all around me, and I felt a tremendous shock. No pain, only a violent shock, such as you get from an electric terminal. With it, a sense of utter weakness, a feeling of being stricken and shriveled up to nothing. The sandbags in front of me receded into immense distance. I fancy you would feel much the same if you were struck by lightning. I knew immediately that I was hit. But because of the seeming bang and flash, I thought it was a rifle nearby that had gone off accidentally and shot me. All this happened in a space of time much less than a second. The next moment, my knees crumpled and I was falling, my head hitting the ground with a violent bang which, to my relief, did not hurt. I had a numb, dazed feeling, a consciousness of being very badly hurt, but no pain in the ordinary sense. The American sentry I had been talking to started forward. Gosh, are you hit? People gathered around, there was the usual fuss, lift him up, where's he hit, get his shirt open, etc., etc. The American called for a knife to cut my shirt open. I knew there was one in my pocket and tried to get it out, but discovered that my right arm was paralyzed. Not being in pain, I felt a vague satisfaction. This ought to please my wife, I thought. She'd always wanted me to be wounded, which would save me from being killed when the great battle came. It was only now that it occurred to me to wonder where I was hit, and how badly. I could feel nothing but I was conscious that the bullet had struck me somewhere in the front of the body. When I tried to speak, I found that I had no voice, only a faint squeak. But at the second attempt, I managed to ask where I was hit. In the throat, they said. Harry Webb, our stretcher bearer, had brought a bandage and one of the little bottles of alcohol they gave us for field dressings. As they lifted me up, a lot of blood poured out of my mouth, and I heard a Spaniard behind me say that the bullet had gone clean through my neck. I felt the alcohol, which at ordinary times would sting like the devil, splash onto the wound with a pleasant coolness. They laid me down again while somebody fetched a stretcher. As soon as I knew that the bullet had gone clean through my neck, I took it for granted that I was done for. I had never heard of a man or an animal getting a bullet through the middle of the neck and surviving it. The blood was dribbling out of the corner of my mouth. The artery is gone, I thought. 
I wondered how long you last when your carotid artery is cut. Not many minutes, presumably. Everything was very blurry. There must have been about two minutes during which I assumed that I was killed. And that too is interesting. I mean, it is interesting to know what your thoughts would be at such a time. My first thought, conventionally enough, was for my wife. My second was a violent resentment at having to leave this world, which, when all is said and done, suits me so well. I had time to feel this very vividly. The stupid mischance infuriated me, the meaninglessness of it, to be bumped off, not even in battle, but in this stale corner of the trenches, thanks to a moment's carelessness. I thought, too, of the man who shot me. Wondered what he was like, whether he was a Spaniard or a foreigner, whether he knew he had got me, and so forth. I could not feel any resentment against him. I reflected that, as a fascist, I would have killed him if I could but that if he had been taken prisoner and brought before me at this moment, I would merely have congratulated him on his good shooting. It may be, though, that if you were really dying, your thoughts would be quite different. They had just got me onto the stretcher when my paralyzed right arm came to life and began hurting damnably. At the time, I imagined that I must have broken it in falling, but the pain reassured me, for I know that your sensations do not become more acute when you are dying. I began to feel more normal, and to be sorry for the four poor devils who were sweating and slithering with a stretcher on their shoulders. It was a mile and a half to the ambulance, and vile going over lumpy, slippery tracks. I knew what a sweat it was, having helped carry wounded man down a day or two earlier. The leaves of the silver poplars, which in places fringed our trenches, brushed against my face. I thought, what a good thing it was to be alive in a world where silver poplars grow. But all the while the pain in my arm was diabolical, making me swear and then try not to swear, because every time I breathed too hard and the blood bubbled out of my mouth. The doctor rebandaged the wound, gave me a shot of morphia, and sent me off to Siatamo. The hospitals at Siatamo were hurriedly constructed wooden huts where the wounded were, as a rule, only kept for a few hours before being sent on to Bar Barbastro or Lerida. I was dopey from morphia, but still in great pain, practically unable to move and swallowing blood constantly. It was typical of Spanish hospital methods that while I was in this state, the untrained nurse tried to force the regulation hospital meal, a huge meal of soup, eggs, greasy stew, and so forth, down my throat and seemed surprised when I would not take it. I asked for a cigarette, but this is one of the periods of tobacco famine and there was not a cigarette in the place. Presently, two comrades who had got permission to leave the line for a few hours appeared at my bedside. Hello, you're alive, are you? You want your watch and your revolver and your electric torch, and your knife if you've got one. They made off with all of my portable possessions. This always happened when a man was wounded. Everything he possessed was promptly divided up, quite rightly, for watches, revolvers, and so forth, were precious at the front, and they went down the line in a wounded man's kit if they were certain to be stolen somewhere on the way. By the evening, Enough sick and wounded had trickled in to make up a few ambulance loads, and they sent us on to Barbastro. What a journey. It used to be said that in this war, you got well if you were wounded in the extremities, but always died of a wound in the abdomen. I now realized why. No one who was liable to bleed internally could have survived those miles of jolting over metal roads that had been smashed to pieces by heavy lorries, never repaired since the war began. Bang. Bump. Wallop. Took me back to my childhood and a dreadful thing called the Wiggle Woggle at the White City Exhibition. They had forgotten to tie us into the stretchers, 
I had enough strength in my left arm to hang on, but one poor wretch was spilt onto the floor and suffered God knows what agonies. Another, a walking case, who was sitting in the corner of the ambulance, vomited all over the place. The hospital in Barbastro was very crowded, the beds so close together that they were almost touching. Next morning they loaded a number of us onto the hospital train and sent us down to Lerita. I was five or six days in Lerita. It was a big hospital with sick, wounded, and ordinary civilian patients more or less jumbled up together. Some of the men in my ward had frightful wounds. In the next bed to me there was a youth with black hair who was suffering from some disease or other and was being given medicine that made his urine as green as emerald. His bed bottle was one of the sights of the ward. An English-speaking Dutch communist, having heard that there was an Englishman in the hospital, befriended me and brought me English newspapers. He had been terribly wounded in the October fighting and had somehow managed to settle down at Lerita Hospital and had married one of the nurses. Thanks to his wound, one of his legs had shriveled till it was no thicker than my arm. Two militiamen on leave, whom I had met my first week at the front, came in to see a wounded friend and recognized me. They were kids of about eighteen. They stood awkwardly beside my bed, trying to think of something to say, and then, as a way of demonstrating they were sorry I was wounded, suddenly took all the tobacco out of their pockets gave it to me and fled before I could give it back. How typically Spanish. I discovered afterwards that you could not buy tobacco anywhere in the town, and what they had given me was a week's ration. After a few days, I was able to get up and walk about with my arm in a sling. For some reason, it hurt much more when it hung down. I also had, for the time being, a good deal of internal pain from the damage I had done myself in falling, and my voice had disappeared almost completely, but I never had a moment's pain from the bullet wound itself. It seems this is usually the case. The tremendous shock of a bullet prevents sensation locally. A splinter of shell or bomb which is jagged and usually hits you less hard would probably hurt like the devil. There was a pleasant garden in the hospital grounds, and in it was a pool with goldfishes and some dark gray fish. Bleak, I think. I used to sit watching them for hours. The way things were done at Lerita gave me an insight into the hospital on the hospital system on the Aragon front. Whether it was the same on other fronts, I do not know. In some ways, the hospitals were very good. The doctors were able men, and there seemed to be no shortage of drugs and equipment. But there were two bad faults, on account of which I have no doubt hundreds or thousands of men have died who might have been saved. One was the fact that all the hospitals anywhere near the front line were used more or less as casualty clearing stations. The result was that you got no treatment there unless you were too badly wounded to be moved. In theory, most of the wounded were sent back to Barcelona or Tarragona, but owing to the lack of transport, they were often a week or ten days in getting there. They were kept hanging about at Sietamo, Barbastro, Monzon, Lareda, and other places, and meanwhile they were getting no treatment except an occasional clean bandage, sometimes not even that. Men with dreadful shell wounds, smashed bones, and so forth were swathed in a sort of casing made of bandages and plaster of Paris. The description of the wound was written in pencil on the outside, and as a rule, the casing was not removed till the man reached Barcelona or Tarragona ten days later. It was almost impossible to get one's wound examined along the way. The few doctors could not cope with the work, and they simply walked hurriedly past your bed saying, yes, yes, they'll attend to you at Barcelona. There were always rumors of the hospital terrain was leaving for Barcelona mañana. The other fault was the lack of competent nurses. Apparently, there was no supply of trained nurses in Spain, perhaps because before the war this work was done chiefly by nuns. I had no complaint against the Spanish nurses, they were always... they always treated me with the greatest kindness, 
but there was no doubt that they were terribly ignorant. All of them knew how to take a temperature, and some of them knew how to tie a bandage, but that was about all. The result was that men who were too ill to fend for themselves were often shamefully neglected. The nurses would let a man remain constipated for a week on end, and they seldom washed those who were too weak to wash themselves. I remember one poor devil with a smashed arm telling me that he'd been there three weeks without having his face washed. Even beds were left unmade for days together. The food in all the hospitals was very good. Too good, indeed. Even more in Spain than elsewhere, it seemed to be the tradition to stuff sick people with heavy food. At Lerita, the meals were terrific. Breakfast at about six in the morning consisted of soup and omelette, stew, bread, white wine, coffee, and lunch was even larger. This at a time when most of the civil population was seriously underfed. Spaniards seem not to recognize such a thing as a light diet. They give the same food to sick people as to the well ones, always the same rich, greasy cookery with everything sodden in olive oil. One morning it was announced that the men in my ward were to be sent down to Barcelona today. I managed to send a wire to my wife telling her that I was coming, and presently they packed us into buses and took us down to the station. It was only when the train was actually starting that the hospital orderly who traveled with us casually let fall that we were not going to Barcelona after all, but to Tarragona. I suppose the engine driver had changed his mind, just like Spain, I thought. But it was very Spanish, too, that they agreed to hold up the train while I sent another wire, and more Spanish still that the wire never got there. They had put us into ordinary third-class carriages with wooden seats, and many of them were badly wounded, and had only got out of bed the first time that morning. Before long, what with the heat and the jolting, half of them were in a state of collapse, and several vomited on the floor. The hospital orderly threaded his way among the corpse-like forms that sprawled everywhere, carrying a large goatskin bottle full of water which he squirted into this mouth or that. It was beastly water, I remember the taste of it still. We got into Tarragona as the sun was getting low. The line runs along the shore, a stone's throw from the sea. As our train drew into the station, a troop train full of men from the international column was drawing out, and a knot of people on the bridge were waving to them. It was a very long train, packed to the bursting point with men with field guns lashed on the open trucks and more men clustering around the guns. I remember with peculiar vividness the spectacle of that train passing in the yellow evening light. Window after window full of dark, smiling faces, the long, tilted barrels of the guns, the scarlet scarves fluttering, all this gliding slowly past us in a turquoise-colored sea. Extranjeros. Foreigners, said someone. They're Italians. Obviously they were Italians. No other people could have grouped themselves so picturesquely or returned the salutes of the crowd with so much grace, a grace that was nonetheless because about half the men in the train were drinking out of upended wine bottles. We heard afterwards that they were some of the troops who won the great victory at the Guadalajara in March. They had been on leave and were being transferred to the Aragon Front. Most of them, I am afraid, were killed at Huesca only a few weeks later. The men who were well enough to get to stand had moved across the carriage to cheer the Italians as they went past. A crutch waved out the window. Bandaged forearms made the red salute. It was like an allegorical picture of the war. The trainload of fresh men gliding proudly up the line, the maimed men sliding slowly down, and all the while the guns in the open trucks making one's heart leap as guns always do, and reviving that pernicious feeling so difficult to get rid of that war is glorious after all. The hospital at Tarragona was a very big one and full of wounded from all fronts. What wounds one saw there! They had a way of treating certain wounds which I suppose was in accordance with the latest medical practice but which was peculiarly horrible to look at. 
This was to leave the wound completely open and unbandaged, but protected from flies by a net of butter muslin stretched over wires. Under the muslin, you would see the red jelly of a half-healed wound. There was one man wounded in the face and throat who had his head inside a sort of spherical helmet of butter muslin. His mouth was closed up and he breathed through a little tube that was fixed between his lips. Poor devil, he looked so lonely wandering to and fro, looking at you through his muslin cage and unable to speak. I was three or four days at Tarragona. My strength was coming back, and one day, by going slowly, I managed to walk down as far as the beach. It was queer to see the seaside life going on almost as usual. The smart cafes along the promenade and the plump local bourgeoisie bathing and sunning themselves in deck chairs as though there had not been a war within a thousand miles. Nevertheless, as it happened, I saw a bather drowned, which one would have thought impossible in that shallow and tepid sea. Finally, eight or nine days after leaving the front, I had my wound examined. In the surgery where newly arrived cases were examined, doctors with huge pairs of shears were hacking away the breastplates of plaster in which men were smashed ribs, collarbones, and so forth had been cased at the dressing stations behind the line. Out of the neck hole of this clumsy breastplate, you would see protruding an anxious, dirty face, scrubby with a week's beard. The doctor, a brisk, handsome man of about thirty, sat me down in a chair, grasped my tongue with a piece of rough gauze, pulled it out as far as it would go, thrust a dentist's mirror down my throat, and told me to say, "Eh." <laughs> After doing this till my tongue was bleeding and my eyes running with water, he told me that one vocal cord was paralyzed. When shall I get my voice back, I said. Your voice? Oh, you'll never get your voice back, he said cheerfully. However, he was wrong, as it turned out. For about two months I could not speak much above a whisper, but after that my voice became normal rather suddenly, the other vocal cord having compensated. The pain in my arm was due to the bolt having pierced a bunch of nerves at the back of my neck. It was a shooting pain like neuralgia, and it went on hurting continuously for about a month, especially at night, so that I did not get much sleep. The fingers of my right hand were also semi-paralyzed. Even now, five months afterward, my forefinger is still numb. A queer effect for a neck wound to have. The wound was a curiosity in a small way, and various doctors examined it with much clicking of tongues and que suerte, que suerte. One of them told me with an air of authority that the bullet had missed the artery by about a millimeter. I don't know how he knew. No one I met at this time, doctors, nurses, practicantes, or fellow patients, failed to assure me that a man who was hit through the neck and survives it is the luckiest creature alive. I could not help thinking that it would be even luckier not to be hit at all. <laughs>